Titus, that letter written by Paul to his son in the ministry, is a very intimate letter. We've seen it from the very beginning where he calls out to Titus as his true child in a common faith. You know, we started our journey in Titus some weeks ago asking the questions, if not programs, then what? And we answered it first of all by saying, if not programs, then we will refine and teach the gospel. We will refine our understanding of the gospel and we will proclaim it to this church and to this city and to this nation and to the world. If we don't tie all of our energy and our resources and our time and our and our uh, time up into a program, which in itself may not be evil, but doesn't fully accomplish His will, if we don't tie ourselves up in that, then we have the opportunity to refine our understanding of the gospel through right teaching and right living, through personal discipleship, through family worship, and through the sending of missionaries. The gospel will go to all the nations and all the earth. So we see in that first paragraph, what is the true gospel there? If not programs, then what? Well, the second answer was, we'll have right leadership. Not only will we have a right message, but we'll have right leadership. Biblical leadership, which Paul tells Titus he must do. He must set up elders in every city. And put everything that remains out of order into order. He gave us a clear picture of what these leaders' lives should look like. And again, he emphasizes in verse 9 that the gospel is the center of that leader's life. He must hold to the trustworthy, trustworthy word as it was taught. He must hold to it. That's the life of the elder. If not programs, we'll have more time to refine and teach the gospel, set up true godly leadership. And third, we said, if we don't spend all of our energy and time and resources in programs, we might have an opportunity to root out false teachers that are among us. Paul said to the elders at Ephesus, we see in Acts 20, in Ephesus they were promised that the wolves would come in sheep's clothing and they would be among them. Not on the outside, but on the inside. The church today is so focused on the outside world that it's lost sight of the inside. And while we've been so busy pointing a wagging a finger of judgmentalism at a lost world, the false teachers have snuck in and they've taken root. And now we're dealing with those consequences in our nation. We're going to see it in just a moment. Many great and grave consequences. And their lives are characteristic of being empty talkers, liars, especially those that are teaching a return to legalistic Judaism, a faith of the flesh and not a faith of the Spirit. Paul says, don't waste all your time, Titus, on other pursuits. Shut these men's mouths so that the truth may prevail. If not programs, we'll spend time refining the gospel and preaching the gospel, setting up godly leadership, rooting out false teachers. If not programs, then we might have time, energy, and resources to organize our society around biblical principles. Older women teaching younger women and older men training and teaching younger men the truth 
of not only the gospel, but what the gospel does to our lives, that we might live a life, as he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, according to the gospel, that accords with the gospel. Instead of pouring our time, I mean, think of your average church week at your average church, even in Cowan County. It's consumed with about six hours of meetings, right? Corporate meetings. Because every meeting lasts about an hour and a half. And then you've got time there before and after. Six hours consumed in meetings. And then I can't even tell how many hours, and you might not even know how many hours, consumed in pointless organizational meetings that don't have anything to do with the gospel, do they? They have to do with maintaining the status of the church, the organization of the church, the programs that we've set up over the years that can't die. Me and my grandmother talked about this my last trip home. She wails about the fact there are no GAs and RAs anymore. Now they got this thing called Awana. You know, Awana is like it's from hell, you know. It's, it's hellish doctrine, this Awana. Now, I'm not against GAs and RAs. I was an RA myself, a royal ambassador. Okay? As I grew up, I went every Wednesday. I learned a lot of good things there. But now that I'm older and I look back, I see that a lot of time and energy was consumed on busyness, not on the gospel, not on training children to be like Christ. But it was on good stuff, just not the main thing, you see. And so there is a generation among us who cries out for the need of these old programs. But what I'm calling on us to do is go back to the oldest faith of the New Testament, which calls on us, to refine our doctrine, preach it to the world, set up godly leadership, root out those who are ungodly in leadership, organize our society around a biblical society, olders teaching youngers, which itself is according to the gospel and an adornment of the gospel, as Dave talked about last week. It's the beautiful Makeup that covers that blemished face. We're blemished. We're ugly in our nature. But the gospel and the life that comes out of the gospel is like beautiful adornment. Which causes a man to look past the blemish and see the beauty of the bride. So we've talked through these first two chapters and now we've come to verse 11. Our verse for today. Titus 2, 11 through 14. And we haven't read it this morning, so I want to read it to you. This is the key passage in the entire letter. This is it. This is the crux. As Eric said, this is Eric Davis's favorite passage in all the Bible. See, well, it's not my favorite passage. Usually I say that. But see, now it's Eric's favorite passage. See. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus, don't set up a bunch of programs. Just declare these things. Exhort these things. Rebuke these people who need rebuking with all authority, letting no one disregard you. Verse 15 to me, I don't know about to you, but to me, verse 15 is as clear a call to the proclaiming of the gospel by verbal proclamation as any verse in the Bible. Declare. Not simply live. Don't just go around doing these things yourself so that other people will see it and ask you a question about it. No. Titus, open your mouth and tell them these things. Declare it. Then he builds on top of it. Not only are you to open your mouth in some wimpy, puny way, but exhort them. Encourage. I don't know how to encourage anyone lest I encourage them, open my mouth, talk to them, rebuke them. Discipline them. Show them where they're missing the mark. Bring them back to the gospel. Titus. All of that with all authority. God has entrusted the power of salvation to the Word, eternal Word, and that Word is made known to all men by the Word of your mouth. The whole thing is encapsulated in a message, a Word. You're looking at me like that's no big deal. You live in a world that tells you that's out of date. You live in a world that tells you all a preacher does when he stands up and preaches for 35, 40, 45 minutes is waste your life. And what I'm telling you is, as Paul says, it is life. That this word is taught and that you are encouraged and disciplined is life. If you don't do these things, Titus, you'll be disregarded. The gospel will be disregarded, seems to be his implication and people will eternally pay the price. But we live in a world that challenges that. And they think they're challenging the method, preaching. But in actuality, they're challenging the God of the Word who commissioned the preaching and proclamation of His Word. Now, are we simply to be preached at for 45 minutes a week? Is that all this means? Absolutely not. No one has ever claimed that. That is a true teacher of Orthodox Christianity. No one has ever said all the Christian life is is an hour and a half on Sunday. No one's ever made that claim. Now, that's the ridiculous claim that the people who want to do away with the preaching try to make about the Orthodox Church. But that's not what anybody's ever said. What we've said is this is part, not the whole. But it is a part. It's necessary. 
How else might we exhort? How else might we rebuke? Individually. In small groups. One-on-one. In our homes. A father to a wife. A father to a mother. A father to the children. A mother to the children. A husband to a wife. A wife to a husband. That's how we might rebuke and exhort. But simply doing away with preaching, the declaring of these things publicly, which by the way, if you wonder, how do you get that this this is public? Because the letter was written so that it might be read in public. He's telling him to do the very thing he wrote to him so that he would stand up and do. It was the only way the letter got in their hands. There weren't a bunch of copies of the letter of Titus. There was one copy. It was written to Titus and he was to stand up in all the cities and proclaim it, preach it to the people. So we have a defense of the great truth of preaching which started with the Old Testament. Preaching has been since the very beginning and has carried out throughout our centuries and our days. And so we're here this morning looking at this text where Paul has said, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. And so what is it that we're to exhort and rebuke with all authority? What is it that we're to declare with all authority? That's what I want to look at with you this morning. Preach. I've just entitled the paragraph, Preach the Pure Gospel. Preach the Pure Gospel. Now, let me do two things. One, this is going to be an inductive sermon. Deductive, inductive. I usually preach deductively. I do all the hard work for you. I think for you. I don't ask you any questions. I just simply tell you about it. Okay? You like that, I know. You like to be spoon-fed. It's a less work. Okay? Inductive messages are very hard to preach. They're very hard for you because they require you to engage your mind and answer questions. All right? So I'm going to ask questions and answer questions. Hopefully by the end of it, you'll leave with more questions than you came in with. If you don't, then I didn't do a good job. Inductive study causes questions to be asked and answered. Okay? We're going to limit it. There's tons of questions we could ask about this text. We're going to limit it for time's sake. All right? So I say that up front. If you're trying to take an outline on this message, do your best. It will be very, very difficult. Just like it would have been difficult to take outline on Paul, Peter, John, or any of the apostles, because this is how they taught. Jesus always taught inductively. We don't see any point one, two, three, four sermons from Jesus. They're all questions, answers, questions, answers. So feel free, take notes. Knock yourself out. You might want to get the tape later, though, because you're going to miss about half of it. Relax. This is serious, but you don't have to get so panicked. If you get lost, put your pen down and listen. You'll survive. Okay? Now I want to tell you a story to introduce the text. I want you to put yourself in imaginary land with me for a moment. And you go home today, and you've had hand brought to your front door an invitation from the President of the United States to attend a personal dinner with him at the White House. 
Now you're excited about this, as anybody would be, Democrat or Republican. Everybody's excited to go see the president. Very few people get one-on-one time with him. So you have this invitation, and you go show up at the appointed time, and there the president is as you walk in the room, seated by the fire, waiting on you. Now think about this. It's the President of the United States. You've gone to the White House. You show up, you walk in, the President's there by the fire. You glance over at him, kind of smile, walk past him and begin to tour the home. There are other people there, servants, people serving food. You eat some of the food. Man, it's the best food in the world. Fine dining, fine wine, beautiful gifts have been prepared for you. And you're amazed by them. And you tour the home for hours, looking at every intricate beauty of the home. And then someone comes to you and says, Do you believe in the President of the United States of America? Certainly, I believe in the president. Matter of fact, I not only believe in the president, I believe that's the president out there by the fire. Not only do I believe he's the president, but he's the most powerful man in the world. That's why I'm enjoying all these things. Because he's the most powerful man in the world. And he's given me all these things for me to enjoy. And I'm enjoying I believe in the president. I believe he's the most powerful man in all the world. And I enjoy his gifts. But implicitly at that moment you're saying, I do not enjoy the president. Right? Think with me. The president invited you to his home. You showed up. He was there waiting for you. And you proceeded past him without so much as a hardly a glance to enjoy the gifts that he had to offer. And when asked, you said, I believe in the president. I believe he's the most powerful man in the world. And implicitly you said, I believe that because I want the things he can give me. But I don't want him. Matter of fact, I'd be just as happy if he didn't take up my time so that I have more time for the things He's given me. Do you know, that's the description of most lives in this room. And the majority of the evangelical church we are a part of as a whole in this nation. We have grown up cutting our teeth on a gospel that is not the gospel. We've grown up cutting our teeth on this stuff they call the gospel, which is no more than a lie from the pit of hell. And that is that if you'll simply repeat something after them, you will receive heaven. Now they call heaven Jesus, but you quickly find they ain't talking about Jesus. They're talking about the stuff. Because all they talk about is you're not going to go to hell. You're going to go to heaven. There's mansions of gold asphalt of gold, crystal sea, 
all these beautiful things. Don't you want to go to heaven? When will somebody say, don't you want to spend time with the president? Whether he meets you in the White House with all the gifts or on the street corner, don't you want the president? And I might say to you, like Paul says in this text, don't you want our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Don't you want Him? Sadly, as Matthew 7 says, many will appear before Him in that day as He is on His throne. They will look Him in the face and they will recount all the things they've done so that they might have the stuff that He had to offer. And He will quickly tell them, get out of my sight. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. I invited you to me and you came for the stuff. So you can't have the stuff. And now you can't have me. Get out. Get out. Sadly, probably, I don't know, conservative 80%? Let's get real. In the church today, in America, 90%, 95% of the people sitting in pews in churches across this nation at this very hour, when they die, will stand before a judge who is their judge, not their older brother, not their saving great God. And they'll say, but we... We did all these things. We enjoyed all this stuff. And we wanted more stuff. And he'll say, away with you. You didn't want me. I sent you an invitation to me, not to the stuff. And you wanted the stuff. You wanted the stuff. Notice Paul doesn't talk about stuff. Verse 11, the grace of God, salvation for all people. Verse 13, the blessed hope, the glory of God, our Savior, who is great, Jesus Christ. No heaven, no gold mansions, no gold streets, no crystal glass sea, no chocolate without getting fat, no golf. No hunting. None of that. Just our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've told you this short story, which is not original with me. Many have used it. J.C. Ryle, the best of us, used it. I've used it, and all I want to do is say to you that today... When you leave this place, I want you to leave understanding that biblically, the gospel is God. The gospel, when we say we believe in the gospel, what we're saying is we believe, we trust, we accept, we love, we treasure, not a thing, but a person. His name is Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. 
I want us to look at the text, 11 through 14, declaring this without letting anyone disregard us so that we might answer some simple questions. What are we saved from? What are we saved from? In verse 11 it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. What are we saved from? The gospel has appeared to all men, it says. What are they being saved from, though? Well, I want to first answer this appearing. The gospel has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. That word means come to light. It's come to light. It's been made obvious. It's been shown forth. It's not secret. It's not some cryptic code. The grace of God has appeared. Do you catch that? The grace of God has appeared. Appeared. How does the gospel, how does a message appear? Was it written in invisible ink? Have we been given a decoder that we might see it? No. The grace of God has appeared. How did it appear? John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace upon grace, grace and truth. Grace upon grace. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ has appeared. That's Grace of God is a phrase Paul is using to speak of Jesus. We could just need to say Jesus appeared to all men. The grace of God appeared to all men. We believe in a person, a real legitimate person, not a thing, not a set of values, not some moral code. We believe in a Christ. His name is Jesus. He is the grace of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the grace of God embodied. For us, hold your place here in, an, in in this attempt to be inductive. I want to help you answer the question. Two nineteen, Second Timothy two verse nineteen. If you'll turn there, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal: the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who who's, who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are His. God knows us. Look back in verse uh, 9 and 10 of chapter 1 in in 2 Timothy 2, I mean 1, 9 and 10. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus. There it is. Grace is was given to us in the form, the person, the embodiment of Jesus Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested, appeared, brought to light, made obvious, clear. It is not a secret that Jesus is the grace of God and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 that... The grace of God is a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus is grace of God. He is the love and kindness of God. Look at chapter 3. This, this, this 
person we believe in, this Jesus, is grace, love, and kindness. It's not that He has grace, love, and kindness. He is grace, love, and kindness. It is who He is. He has embodied these things for us. If you look at Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, which Dave will preach to you next week. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Again, Paul is titling Jesus. We might say He is good. He is kind. He is love. He is gracious. Jesus Christ. The gospel has appeared. The gospel has appeared because Jesus Christ has appeared. And it's appeared not to just a few, but to all men. All men. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, let me say what this is not. This is not a universal statement of salvation. This does not mean that every person has been saved. What does it mean? Well, it speaks of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for salvation. 1 Timothy, if you'll turn to 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. Paul will talk about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. You see that? That addition of that clause of those who believe is key to our understanding of all men in Titus 2 verse 11 and in 1 Timothy 4 verse 9 and 10. We see that all men does not mean universally everyone. Rather, it means especially those who believe. So, it's not speaking of universal salvation, but it is speaking of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Jesus would not have had to suffer not one ounce more had God so chosen to save one more sinner. His suffering is sufficient grounds for God to save everyone who ever lived. If God so desired, He could prevent anyone from going to hell by applying the blood of Christ to all men. Applying the sacrifice of Christ to all men. It's sufficient. Nothing needs to be added to it. It is enough. It not only is for the saved, but it also it not only is for the saved, but it also is for those who are not saved. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 says that, that Christ gave Himself because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. You see that? All people. Especially of those who believe. May I say to you, lost person, whoever you are in this audience, and I trust there probably are lost people here, the only reason you are alive to hear this message is because Jesus Christ died on the cross. If it were not for the Christ sacrifice, if it were not for that sacrifice, the moment you sin, you would be consumed. 
You say, the moment I sin, like, from now on? No. I mean, the first time you sinned in your life, the very first moment you did something in rebellion to your mother or father or someone else in authority, the very moment that you worshiped something instead of God, as soon as you did that, you would be consumed. God would have done this to all people from Adam forward. But because he is a gracious, good, and loving God, before Adam, there was Christ who was planned to die for the salvation of those who would believe, and not only them, but for all men temporally, so that you might live another breath, Christ has died. The very Christ you mock in your unbelief is the very Christ that keeps you alive in this moment. That amazes me that God is that gracious. He puts up with you, sinner. He puts up with you years on end, sin after sin, blasphemy after blasphemy, mocking after mocking. He puts up with you based on Christ and Him alone. So when he says in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 that the grace of God appeared to all men, he means it appeared to all men. Because you have what we know as common grace, sinner, to even walk in this place, living, breathing, and moving, thinking, enjoying life. Sinner, if you live a hundred years, you will live a pretty good life in comparison to the rest of the world. You will live a pretty fat and happy life. You will eat good. You will sleep well. You will make money. You will have children. You will have fun. You will have entertainment. You will have it all. You will have it all in this life. And the only reason you have any of those things is because of Christ. But He didn't just die so that you might have common grace. But for everyone in here who is a believer, He died so that you might have eternal life. In Him you have eternal life. And so, He died for all men. In some way for all men. He is speaking of all nations. Ephesians 2, 11-16, Paul says, He's torn down the wall of partition, the dividing wall between the Gentiles and the Jews, and He has grafted us into one body. Through His death and through His redemption, we are one. Revelation 5, 9-10 says that He is the one worthy to be praised because He is bringing some from every tribe and every tongue and every nation in all the earth. He's speaking of all men. He's speaking of the sufficiency of the sacrifice. He's speaking of the universal benefit of common grace. He's speaking of the nations. All nations. He's speaking of all classes. When He says all people, all men, we might say He's speaking of all types of people. We saw it, didn't we? In context, if we look at the context, the clearest meaning is he means that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, whether they're slaves or slave owners, whether they're young men or old men, whether they're young women or old women. All classes. Galatians tells us in Galatians 3.25 through 29, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, But in Christ, we are all one. It speaks of all classes. 
The gospel has appeared to all men. But I ask the question, what are we saved from? The gospel is salvation from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. Look at verse 11b. Salvation is there. Bringing salvation. Salvation from what? That was the genesis of the question. What are we saved from? From the penalty of sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you. That's me. That's all mankind that has ever walked the face of the earth. You say, I'm a little better than the person that lives next to me. I'm a little better than the guy in the pew in front of me. I'm a little better than Adolf Hitler. I've heard that insanity all my life. Well, people can't be all bad because everybody's not like Hitler. That's foolish. That's not what corruption means. That's not what it means that we're all sinners. Not that we're all as bad as we possibly could be, but that we're all bad. We're bad in every part of our being. If you're here without Christ, you're bad in your, in your mental life, in your spiritual life, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. In your physical life, you offer yourself daily to sin as a slave to sin. You can't help but sin because nothing in your life comes from faith. Therefore, it's all sin according to Paul. We're corrupt. All of us in every part of our being are corrupt. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short in every way from the glory of God. And what do we deserve? So what, I'm a sinner. What matters? I'm in the White House enjoying the good things. What does it matter to me if I'm a sinner? The wages of sin is death. What are we saved from? Death. Not just suffering through a heart attack. I mean, we, we, we mourn over a telecaster, and I think it's okay. But I'm thinking, man, that ain't the worst death of all. I don't know his spiritual state. I have any claim to know it. But I'm thinking, man, it's much worse than a heart attack to stand in front of a righteous God and not know his son, Jesus Christ. And if all he has done is suffered a heart attack and now he stands redeemed in front of that throne, that heart attack was trivial, meaningless, a gateway into eternity and bliss and satisfaction. The wages of sin is death. You know why the world hates death so bad? Because it is the sentence that they are sinners. Every time a sinner dies, it's proof that what God has said is true, that the wages of sin is death. Sin entered the world through the sin of one man. Death entered the world through the sin of one man. What are we saved from? The penalty of sin. You deserve death. Not just death temporally. All of us will probably face that. You face the death and sentence of eternity. Separation from God. Total separation from God. What are we being saved from? Why do I need to be saved? Well, you need to be saved because you're a sinner and you need to be saved from the penalty of your sin. 
Jesus said in John 8, 24, You shall die in your sins, speaking to the Pharisees, for unless you believe that I am God, you shall all die in your sins. And then He said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy soul and body in hell. Fear Him. Who is Him? It's God. We spend our time in this culture worried about the most frivolous things. We even spend our time worried about ghosts and goblins. We spend our time worried. Worried. We spend hours worrying that someone might kill us. Don't we? Hours. You can't do this because you might die. You can't do that because you might die. And all the while, Jesus is saying, don't fear those people. You mean that guy down in West Anderson can kill your body? Jesus says, so what? Don't spend your time worried about that guy. That's all he can do. Spend your days worrying fearfully over the fact that there's a great God in heaven who if you don't know His Savior, Jesus Christ, He not only can kill your body and will, He will kill your soul for eternity. Fear Him. Our culture is so backwards. We spend all our time worried about some guy that might take our life. And Jesus said, you're worried about the wrong thing. Hey, you know what? As I read The Voice of the Martyrs, I'm convicted. I was reading their latest magazine. I'm so convicted. Those people could care less about the rulers in their country that can kill them. They don't care. Totally carefree about that. In fact, they praise God that they might have the opportunity to die in His name. They're thankful for it. They rejoice over it. You can almost feel their giddiness that they might die for the gospel. They don't fear people who can take their body. They've rightly feared the one who can punish them eternally. And what I'm saying to you is you're not being saved from some guy who can take your life. I'm talking about the great God of heaven who can take both body and soul. What am I being saved from? From the penalty of sin, according to verse 11. The penalty of sin. We're saved by the grace of God from eternal punishment that we deserve. And who is the grace of God? It's Jesus Christ. What are we saved to do? Well, the gospel is instructing us it is a pedagogy a discipler, an educator, a trainer of the gospel. The gospel is a trainer. What's it teaching us? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to say yes to living a sensible or self-controlled, righteous, godly life in this age. Ungodliness literally means anti-God. Anything that's not godly. Worldly passions speaks of the things that we mentally do, whether we do them physically or not. Ungodliness is a physical action that I do in rebellion against God and against His principles. Worldly passions are in my mind and my heart and they're the things I focus on privately that you can't see but God can. The Gospel's training us to say no to ungodliness, the actions we might do, and to say no to the worldly passions in my heart and my mind. Say no to those things and say yes positively. Say yes to a self-controlled, righteous, or Christ-like, obedient 
godly. That word godly means fellowship with God. So the scenario might be like this. You get an invitation today, and you go not to the White House to see the White House. You go to see the president. You care less whether he's wearing gardener's clothes, whether he's standing on the avenue out in front, or whether he's in some conference room, or whether he's in the cush comfort of his home. You want him, regardless of anything else. You want him.